De la patrulla de Minos de California. Weather headlines for today, yes. Welcome to the Revenue Generator Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, you'll hear how industry leaders integrate sales, marketing, product, and customer success into a single business unit with a common goal of optimizing their revenue cycle. We'll unearth how innovators integrate data, technology, people, and processes to expedite demand generation and increase recurring revenue. Sit back, tune in, and get ready to meet a member of the Revenue Generation. Here's the host of the Revenue Generator podcast, the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. Welcome to the Revenue Generator podcast, where we members of the Revenue Generation share solutions for how you can integrate your business to optimize revenue. I'm your host and the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell, and today we're going to discuss strategies for addressing talent shortages. Joining us is Spencer Wixom, who is the Chief Customer Officer at Challenger, which is a global leader in training, technology, and consulting to win today's complex sale. And today, Spencer and I are going to dig in and discuss what sales-led organizations can do to counter talent shortages. Okay, here's my conversation with Spencer Wixom, the Chief Customer Officer at Challenger. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Doug. It's great to be here. Excited about this. I have to say, this is one of the topics I love to talk about because I feel like more often than not, as leaders, our job is to develop and nurture talent. If we don't do that, we tend to lose our jobs. So having strategies in place to make sure these things go well, I think, super important. So here's the thing I, I've encountered, Spencer, which is that I think talent shortages can make or break a sales organization. And I, I don't think that's new. And I think a long-term trend in my world, which is B2B SaaS, has been to create the equivalent of a farm system to address that problem. It's a constant problem, which is to grow sales talent from the sales dev organization. Are there examples in your client base you can draw to where organizations kind of have that built in to develop sales talent? Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting. It's a great question. And it, you can take it in a couple of different ways. You can look across uh, different types of sales models or different industries and see how they would use like a farm system or cultivating talent in those industries. So for example, I was having a conversation with a client of ours, large industrial manufacturing organization, heavy engineering focus a few weeks ago. And we were talking about that very thing and how this particular individual in sales effectiveness is trying to cultivate young talent. Because you see in that particular industry, a lot of salespeople are you know, 50 years old plus, they're looking to move out of that industry and retire soon. And quite honestly, it's not as sexy an industry as technology and others for young sales talent to go into. So what they need to do is bring individuals into the organization with say an engineering background, let them be engineers for a couple of years to really learn the product, learn the company, learn the industry, and then convert them over into sales roles. Now, one of the interesting things, I'm also a, an adjunct professor of sales. I teach an intro to sales course at UT Dallas. And UT Dallas is one of the premier undergrad sales programs in the nation. They compete in all of the national competitions and such. And what's really exciting there and what I'm starting to see as an interesting balance is you have a lot of these individuals with a particular specialty or emphasis, call it like engineering, supply chain, all of these different things coming and then getting a certificate in sales. So learning the sales fundamentals, learning a persuasive conversation, learning things like you know the spin framework, and then 
going out, practicing in supply chain, practicing in engineering for a couple of years, but they've got uh, they've got that introduction to the skills and to the processes and all of that related to sales, and then converting over into a, a sales role. And that's working, or it's starting to work quite well for finding new talent, is appreciate what they're interested in as a specialty in their degree, try to get them some sales exposure as far as fundamentals up front and have kind of a plan in a three to five year time frame of moving them into sales roles. That's interesting because I feel like you have these scenarios more often than not that the better salespeople come from somewhere else. In other words, they don't necessarily have a classic business background. In other words, they could be a philosophy major. They could be something different. So typically you're taking talent where you can and kind of nurturing and training it. But what you're encountering is that it's actually being addressed at the university level. In other words, those skill sets are starting to be built in as undergraduates, which is frankly, at the end of the day, pretty impressive that undergraduates can get or kind of grasp that idea heading in. Well, yeah, you've got to do that these days. I mean, if you think about where sales is today as a technical profession compared to where it was 10 years ago, it's night and day different. The number of systems you need to understand the precision by which you're following a process, the amount of scrutiny and kind of support resources that are going into optimizing the performance of salespeople, the stakes are a lot higher. So I do feel like that's a bit of an outdated notion, the idea that like I graduate with a liberal arts degree, which truth be told, that's exactly what I did, right? <laughs> I had a degree in English. I got a minor in finance because I realized I you know, needed some kind of a job. I got into quote unquote sales and investment banking, but it was one of these ideas of like, you know, what do I do? Well, I should probably go into sales and hopefully whatever company hires me will have the patience and the willingness to invest in developing me as a salesperson. Now, there may still be organizations that are doing that, but the most progressive organizations are looking for individuals who have had some exposure, had some training, had some internship before they even start because of so many systems and processes and theories and all of that that, that you have to understand and know. Do you feel like you're seeing sales tech make a difference in terms of lifting the average salesperson's performance? Oh, I am for sure. It may lift the, in, there are certain sales technologies that lift an individual's performance. But to do that, the organization has to make good bets around the technology that it brings in to support. So for example, you know, a lot of people will say a conversation intelligence tool like a gong or a chorus helps me as an individual seller. And, and I think to a certain degree, if you've got the kind of the diligence and the patience to use the tool consistently, it can. But the organization also has to think, think strategically about how it supports you in the use of that tool. Sales enablement needs to be reviewing you know, those recorded calls and looking for recommendations for improvement around, say, delivering particular messaging or practicing certain elements of the methodology or certain skills. Unfortunately, I, based on the data that I've seen, managers aren't doing that as frequently as people would like. And you know, that's a topic we can talk about, which is what can you really expect of a frontline sales manager in developing the capability of a salesperson? But when an organization makes a tool decision, it's not just a matter of like, we invest in a tool, we plug it in, we say to sellers, you now have access to this tool, go reap benefit from it. It's got to be, you've got to nurture that along or 
only by chance will individual sellers get some benefit from those tools. Yeah, the sales tech in and of itself is not going to solve the problem you've installed the software for. You've got process, you've got leadership, you've got, you know, frankly, at the end of the day, integration into how you think about improving the quality of the sales experience, right? Or the quality of the sales engagement. But I'm curious because I, I think if I can put a rubric in people's head right now, I want them to have an understanding of when do I have it? Like, what's the sign that I have a talent shortage? Not a people shortage, but a talent shortage, meaning I don't have the team I need to be effective. Is it the trailing indicators? I'm not hitting my number. My quota attainment is not what it needs to be. Like, what's typically a really good sign that you have a talent shortage? Well, it's interesting because I think if you if you follow on the traditional output metrics and measuring those, you may be a little bit too late in noticing that you have a talent shortage, right? If you all of a sudden say, oh, wow, our cycle times are going up, our number of opportunities in funnel are down, our conversion rates are down, you know, our average deal size is like going down, all of those elements of a velocity metric. And you say, oh boy, we're in trouble. Yes, you can try to address the problem at that point, but you're late to the game. I do think it's it's looking at individual interactions that salespeople are having with customers, those critical moments in your sales process. And are we executing those moments at high quality? Now, there's a couple of different ways to measure that. Right. First of all, you can rely on the self-reported feedback of individual sellers. And a lot of people gear their CRM to do that. Right. When you put in an activity in the CRM, say a first sales interaction, you know, they have a number of different ways to score that or look at that. And you could say, like, okay, is the self-reported data on the quality of these interactions going down? But remember, it's self-reported data and it's coming from the individuals performing the interaction. They're not gonna be as honest with themselves as, as you would want them to be. Okay, so maybe that doesn't work. Okay, do we have our managers observe those interactions, those moments, and, and provide feedback? Well, we know spans of control among managers are going up, right? So it's harder for managers to be to play an active role in observing all of those calls. Yes, conversation intelligence could help them do it asynchronously. Again, we're not seeing a lot of that happening. So you basically, that's an objective view of it and probably an important thing to do. The other thing is to ask customers how it's going. We gather feedback in so many other interactions across the business cycle, right? Somebody goes into a public restroom and there's the little thing there that has the frowny face all the way up to the smiley face and they touch it. You know, and at first I thought when, when I would see those popping up in airport bathrooms and such, I would think, well, that's dumb because it's not really expressing any detail in my feedback. But you get enough of those taps in a given period of time, and they can start to figure out, like, some days, you know, this bathroom is in really good shape. Some days this bathroom is in really bad shape. And how do we, you know, adjust for that to provide a consistent experience? So it's really valuable feedback, even though maybe each data point isn't as deep as you would want it to be. And we do that with customer service calls all the time as well. We're gathering that feedback. Was this call helpful? You know, did we provide you a solution with little effort, things like that. We're not gathering that point in time or near-term feedback as much as we should be in the quality of the interactions our salespeople are having, because those are predictive of the outcomes that you ultimately see. So we've got trailing indicators and you nailed it. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to know that the sales organization maybe isn't performing as they need to be. But then you've got these other heuristics, these other qualitative things that we could measure through, by the way, sales tech that helps us understand whether or not we have the quality of the talent rather 
But I think we're treating this idea of talent as being an absolute that's fixed in time. And we talked originally a bit about a farm system, right? So how am I growing my own talent internally? And we also have free agency we haven't talked about, right? So how am I good at recruiting? How do I bring people on that kind of fit that mold? We talked about these 50-year-old plus salespeople who have deep institutional knowledge and deep product knowledge, how hard they are to replace. But again, it's, it's based on this idea of a fixed talent level. So it can't just be about how do I feed and how do I recruit? It's got to be how do I lift the overall talent of the organization? And we talked about sales tech, but also I got to imagine a piece of this beyond diagnostics is how do I help people be better salespeople by training them better, by having them kind of exposed to different ways of approaching sales? Is that really what we're talking about at the end of the day is, is not just recruiting and farm systems, but how do we raise the average skill level of a salesperson? Oh, absolutely. And I think you have to look at it was interesting that I did some research a couple of years ago that was really fun. So Challenger, just quick background, right? It was originally a study we did at the corporate executive board. One of the biggest profiling exercises ever done of salespeople, thousands and thousands of them, now tens of thousands of them around the world, trying to figure out you know, what was their mix of skills and behaviors and attributes that correlated to high performance. Now, over time, we kept building and building and building that data set. And we got to the point where we had like, tens of thousands of individual seller profiles, hundreds of thousands of data points. And we decided at that point that we had enough data that we could start to really look at the correlations among different skills and behaviors and attributes of salespeople and map them all out on a grid. And the big aha moment for me when we did that is we realized that of all of these different attributes of salespeople that we had used in this study, and there were 44 of them, not all of them were quote unquote skills. What was interesting is they tended to cluster in four parts of a quadrant. So some of them were skills. They were tactical things that you learn how to do over time, like being persuasive in a conversation, right? Being able to negotiate with someone. These are all very tactical skills for selling. But some of them weren't skills you would develop at all. They were gifts, you know, being curious, right? Having tenacity, and I think a lot of organizations, they look at everything and they think, oh, these are all skills we have to develop in people. Now, there are certain kind of tactical activities and behaviors that you can and should develop in people over time. And I like the idea of a farm system in doing that, right? Put people in a situation, say, for example, an SDR role where they have to just practice that prospecting and work that prospecting muscle and get that strong then give them additional things to do, perhaps you know, conducting demos and things like that, where they can get good at presenting a concept or a solution. Then give them more opportunity to present and build consensus among a buying group, right? You're thinking about what are all of the things along the sales process that I need to build tactical capability to do and give people a path to build all of that capability. But then also recognize that, the, so there are these skills there are also these gifts that we need to be screening for, we need to be hiring for, really looking for that may create a proclivity to high performance. And then what's interesting is you also have to create a culture in an organization that you want people to follow. So certain graces, right? Like we care more about our customers than we care about our own agenda. We're generous with our time, things like that. These are all things that are set at the organizational cultural level. And then there are certain chores that are just a necessary part of doing the job. It's not that you would do them better with any degree of skill, but you can use technology to make yourselves more efficient at doing them. 
So there's inherent skills that people have that you can't train, you call them gifts, and I like that, right? So I'm, I'm born being curious, right? I'm born being a very strong, active listener, right? And, I, and I'm sure there's others that you know lead to people being skilled salespeople, but those are gifts. So that feels like that's a part of, so back to this idea of how do I address talent shortages when I have them, that feels like a really useful tool in the recruiting process. So outside of farm systems, how am I finding folks that have those inherent traits that tend to lead to better sales skills? What about for the folks that don't have those inherent gifts, if you will? Are there ways to kind of manage around that through tech or through training to kind of help lift them as well? Do you mean they're already in sales roles or they're interested in sales roles and they don't have the gifts? That's a great distinction. Let's go. So the folks that are interested in sales roles, and I wouldn't mind parsing that out. People that are interested in sales roles and those that are actually already in those sales roles. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think, so let's let's stay on gifts for a second. First of all, if people who aren't in sales roles, you really should have a way of assessing and helping them understand. Now, you can you can evaluate some of these things in behavioral interviews and, and things like that, but I'm a really big fan of these neuro-linguistic programming assessments. As much as people sometimes, you know, argue with the outcomes of them. For example, my students at uh, UT Dallas, we have them all take the Chally assessment. And what I love about that is it indicates they're all kind of interested in sales generally, even though they may not be pursuing a business degree, they're curious about sales. And we do this assessment about halfway through the semester. And some of them, it says, you know what, you're better tuned toward a farmer role, an account management role. Some of you, you're better tuned toward a hunter role. Some of them right on the mix, you know, some of them more of like a customer success type of role. And what that helps them do is at least get a sense for, okay, if I were to play to strength, this is probably where I, I would go. And what I find is interesting is some of them don't like the outcome. <laughs> Personally, I don't like my outcome when I take the Charlie assessment, but they respect it though. They're like, I can see how it is what it is. And it, it gives you that clarity of you're at least making decisions based on an accurate understanding of who you are. Okay. I like that from a guidance standpoint, but I got to say, I'm listening in right now. I am a sales leader. I believe I have a talent shortage. What's the first thing I have to think about? What's the first thing I need to do if I've recognized that I have a talent shortage? Well, if you've recognized you have a talent shortage, you got to figure out where in your process that talent shortage is manifesting itself. Is this near the front of your cycle or your people really struggling to prospect effectively, bring opportunities in? Are you struggling with negotiation on the back end? Are you struggling to perform and persuade in that initial conversation? Are you struggling to build consensus around the idea once you've got it planted in the organization? And it may be multiple of these, but it's important to map that out and say, you know, where as an organization in executing this process, are we stronger and where are we weaker? Because it's, it's not going to be helpful to just go and say like, it, we've got to just be better at selling. Selling today, particularly B2B complex selling, has so many different components to it. And are there diagnostic tools you'd recommend to help people understand? Or are we back to the original heuristics we talked about before in terms of kind of trailing indicators or performance? Yeah, I mean, there, look, there, there are some diagnostic tools out there. I think the most important thing to do is in the simplest way possible is map out what your process looks like. We, a challenger, encourage organizations to think about it at the highest level using a, just a basic acronym we call TEMBO. 
and that's targeting the T is, you know, targeting, thinking about like doing your upfront research and identifying where in certain territories you're going to target, then engage. Do we prospect effectively and have good first meetings manage? Do I, once I've created sort of the seed of an opportunity in an organization, do I manage that effectively to build consensus and build desire to take action plan to close? That's all about the late stage negotiating and handling of any concerns or objections and then operate and grow, which is so much a part of complex B2B selling these days, isn't just that first transaction, but the continued growth and renewal of that relationship over time. So kind of take that framework at the highest level and then map out what are the specific activities we do within that frame. And you're mentioning something that I feel like is been a really big driver of change within how we look at performance sales organizations and specifically the idea of a complex sale, especially when it comes to the fact that typically we aren't just closing a deal anymore, right? We're beginning a relationship with our customer. That's the beginning of a relationship. And in the past, and you know, I'm going to say, let's go back 20 years or so, you know, there was the superstar salesperson, right? Their job was to be all things to everybody. At some point that started falling apart and we started recognizing skill sets. You talked about the difference between a farmer, if you will, and a hunter and a nurturer, if you, if you will, a CSM. And then it feels like that started getting institutionalized, right? So we started recognizing we had these different skill sets. But I guess I have to ask, is there also some change in terms of the way that we view those superstar salespeople in terms of their ability to work within group dynamics? Is that changing the way we think about how we team and recruit and nurture these folks? Yes. In fact, it's changing pretty dramatically. One thing that's very interesting is we've been doing some research recently on negotiation. And historically, I think the way salespeople saw negotiating a deal, even a very big deal, was I've got to win that negotiation. And a couple of things have changed that really we should consider are a shift in that mindset or require a shift in that mindset. Number one is this rise of a really professionalized procurement organization. Their whole job, they have been trained, they have been skilled, they have experience in getting concessions out of you, of beating you at the final mile before the deal. You are outmatched. It's a David and Goliath type of situation you're coming into as a salesperson against a procurement organization. So to take them on head to head, I think it's uh, is Malcolm Gladwell wrote that David and Goliath book, right? Where it's like, David didn't take Goliath on head to head. He figured out how to circumvent Goliath's strength. And that's a bit of what you've got to do from a negotiation standpoint is you cannot take, if you take that procurement organization on head to head, you are going to like bloody yourself pretty badly and the relationship you want to have and cultivate with that organization over time. And what the interesting thing is, is high performers, they understand this and they're taking a different tack toward it. Rather than I'm going to win this negotiation, I'm going to find a way to create value to help like this other party understand the importance of what we're trying to do collectively together. I'm concerned about both parties getting positive outcomes in this because you know we're starting a relationship together. It's sort of like one party selling a house to another party, and then they both have to live together in that house afterward. You're going to handle that sale, that negotiation differently if you know that's the outcome after it closes. 
It's really well put. I have to say, Spencer, I feel like we could spend five or six episodes in this topic alone. But I really enjoyed our conversation. I've learned a lot. And I would love it if you rejoined me. I'd love to. Doug, this has been a great opportunity. I really appreciate it. All right. That's fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us. And okay, that wraps up this episode of the Revenue Generator Podcast. Thanks to Spencer Wixom, the Chief Customer Officer at Challenger, for joining us. In part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Spencer and I are going to dig in and talk about surviving the great resignation through sales tech and training. If you can't wait until our next episode, would like to learn more about Spencer, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes, or you can visit his company's website at challengerinc.com. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head over to revgenpod.com where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter, apply to be a speaker on the Revenue Generator podcast, or you can even share your revenue generation questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is at RevGenPod on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can contact me directly. My handle is Market Advocate. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a daily stream of RevGen strategies in your podcast feed, we're going to publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app. We'll be back in your feed in the next business day. Okay, that's all for today. But until next time, keep cranking because the revenue isn't going to generate itself. 